0: Hello, Jeroen. Hello, Dylan. Well, in there are some topics that are hot off the presses, and you got to hit them while they're hot, and some topics never get old. You might even call them evergreen, and uh, I'd like to think that our topic today is a bit of an evergreen topic. So, uh, Mario Rodjick, welcome back to the show.
1: <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: And uh, and what are we talking about today?
1: So, yeah, I guess we're, we're talking about the idea of uh, evergreen elm, so... Uh, type safety between versions of your application or at least that's 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 my interest in evergreen elm maybe maybe there's other kinds of of evergreen elm that people interested in
0: that's a nice tagline for it so evergreen elm and we were talking before the recording here about different species of different variants of elm tree and apparently there are some variants that are deciduous elm trees and some that are evergreen so Perhaps Lamdera is a an evergreen variant of an elm tree.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm down for that.
0: I'm really keen to to dig into like the philosophical implications and ideas behind evergreen migrations and, and what makes it like such a core part of Lambdera and the guarantees that it provides. And like, so I'm I'm kind of curious, Mario, like could you could you tell us about the motivations and kind of like contrast it to deciduous migrations in other contexts, maybe non Elm contexts. like what, what was the pain point and problem you were trying to solve and the guarantees you were trying to provide?
1: Yeah, sure. So the, I think the, the, the driver for Evergreen was a practical one and the name came afterwards as I kind of expand, expanded that practical problem to the front end. So the, where the where the concept arose from and kind of what led to my original presentation called evergreen elm at, at elm europe in 2019 um was i had started working on i'd started working on the ideas behind early versions of lambda so this idea of, of full stack elm and what that would look like if the elm architecture was on the back end as well right as opposed to um, like previous incarnations of backend Elm and some, you know, current incarnations of backend Elm are kind of like, well, you know, what if we just use Elm as a language instead of JavaScript as a language, but otherwise have all the same concepts, you know, backends obviously have, you know, a server with HTTP endpoints. And, and, you know, so, so like one of the approaches is like, okay, let's model all of that in Elm and see what that looks like. Um, Whereas, yeah, the projects that I'd been working on and the thing that I was kind of reaching for was, yeah, I I wanted an experience on the back end that was the same as the experience on the front end. And so part of that crazy idea initially was, well, what if the database wasn't like a separate thing? Like, I like the Elm model. It's nice that it just, you know, while you're operating in the front end as a front-end developer, you don't think about the persistence of the front-end model, right? As long as the user's browser is open, it's quote-unquote persisted, right? Like you're not thinking about it. Um, and if the user closes their tab, well, then it's gone, right? And so for the back-end, I was like, okay, that's great. But, you know, if the server crashes and all your state disappears, like, that sucks. <laughs> and so StepOn was like, okay, can we solve that problem? But then step two was several of them being like, okay, well, you know, now there's a new thing that we don't really have, or at least I hadn't heard talked about a lot in Elm or just in front end in general, which is what happens when we have a new version of our app and the types have changed. Now I think the general approach on the front end is like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I d I don't know. <laughs> M- Cross may- your fingers and yeah, yeah, maybe they'll click a link and the page will refresh (laughs) we'll be lucky or you know like I suppose if you're I suppose most companies would be like I don't know we'll just hopefully it doesn't happen that much and if something goes wrong and they contact support we'll tell them hey have you tried refreshing the page oh the issues have gone away that's cool great glad we solved your problem and no one thinks about it again
2: I guess the problem happens more with single page applications rather than
1: yeah definitely
2: more traditional way
1: and I had heard, I can't remember who I heard this from, but I had heard anecdotally that like someone was someone once told me, I was like, Oh, they once received like they had they they at their company used like versioning or something, right? So for the front end comms. So they were like, Oh, you know, I don't think we have this problem because we use versioning. And I was like, Okay, cool. What's the oldest event version that you've gotten? They're like, Oh yeah, we got like someone must have kept a tab open for like a year or something, because we got events from like a year ago. I was like, right, and what do you do with those? And they're like, well, I don't know, if you drop them on the floor, like, what, what can you do? You can't do anything, right? In, in, in the normal thinking. So I was like, what would be a really Elm way to solve this? And yeah, the only thing I could think of was, well, it should just upgrade. Like it should just work. It should just continue. And even more so than that is like, I want it to type check. That's what I want. Like I want to go from one version of an app to a new version of an app. And I want the compiler to be like, yeah, you, this is good like however you're going between these two that type checks that makes sense so that was the first motivation it was like that that thought of like okay well if we have data that's alive in one app and we release a new app with new types how do we get from one app to the second app and the reason the name came about
0: i feel like you're you're intuitively going to the more like subtle edge case of it But uh, there's also like the core meat of what most people would think of as a migration that people wouldn't gloss over how to handle these edge cases in their application and just be like, Matt, I hope it works, which is migrating your backend, migrating your database, right? And um, so, of course, that's a less subtle case, but, uh, but evergreen migrations also provide... Uh, a type safe way to migrate from one version of your backend model to a new version of your backend model.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that, that, that was the practical driver. It was like, yeah, obviously the concept of migrations of your backend is already a thing and it's important. So I wanted to facilitate that and for it to be type safe. And then yeah, where the name came from is I realized like, Oh, now that like, if we have this, well, we could do this on the front end as well. And so instead of the front end effectively, like having to drop at state every time there was a new app or you hope the user clicks, which for me had that notion of like, you know, the leaves falling off the tree, it kind of being deciduous. Um, then I thought, oh, well, if the front end can always stay alive, then I was suddenly like, well, that's kind of like how browsers now, you know, they call them like evergreen, right? Like browsers that continually update themselves. And so, yeah, that's, you know, elm and trees and evergreen. I was like, ah, oh, this is nice. This is, this is, yeah, this is the way I'm going. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how well, though, that term translates. A lot of people get confused. I had imagined evergreen would, like, perfectly, like, encapsulate and explain everything. I'd be like, yeah, it's evergreen, but I, it doesn't, doesn't, I'm not sure that in practice that's translated. So, I've definitely found that, that yeah, people, I th- it feels to me like, or at least the way that I experience it, I'd be curious how you guys have experienced it. My experience is that people go, ooh, that's some black magic. Like there's something crazy going on with Evergreen. There's something magical happening, um, when in reality it's actually really dumb. Like it's it's the dumbest possible thing. It's like how do you migrate with a function? Like it takes value A <laughs> and it returns value B. But I think yeah, the the grokking like the 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 details of what that actually means has interestingly been yeah a stumbling point, which I found interesting. Yeah, I was
2: there. Well, we were both there actually with Dylan. You're talking at your Elm um, Europe 2019, so yeah, we we got the explanation right off the bat. So mm,
1: you've been biased, yeah, <laughs> yeah very biased. So yeah, yeah.
2: for me, it's clear. It's it's a function, and I also I've also played with them there a little bit. So yeah, no, for me, it's pretty simple. But I, I can understand why people would be confused or scared of this because yeah, like imagine doing this in any other system than Elm or lambda and like. Yeah no like that has to be magic.
1: Yeah yeah yeah. So maybe and I think it was also funny because like at I was devising this idea for Lamdero which didn't quite exist yet. And so I kind of wanted to do a talk on evergreen elm but I couldn't really mention the back end. So right like so I had to reframe my whole uh, Elm Europe talk as or yeah, like this concept on the front end. And I think for some people, maybe it was like, well, well why would you go to all that effort and just refresh? <laughs> so it was kind of like this idea was there and I was like, this idea is so cool. But then I couldn't talk about it in the context where I thought it was super cool. So yeah, I think I, I kind of demonstrated it backwards. But yeah, maybe maybe if we just went very briefly for, for those listening to understand or who, people who may not have a concept or maybe aren't, aren't tracking, we, we could go through like a couple of types of state and what a migration would look like verbally i think that might give an indicator what do you reckon i just want to correct something because uh, which is my fault because i induced you
2: into giving an error uh, saying something wrong evergreen elm was from 2018
1: oh i see lamdera lamdera was 2019 there yeah okay yep, so that's it.
0: the one i was in the audience for yeah but i i really enjoyed watching the evergreen one on youtube <laughs> uh, nice. Same nice.
1: yeah okay so let's take a model so let's say you have a i think to, explaining it on the front end is probably the easiest um so let's say on your front end we have the counter app right and i think i did this in my talk in in in, in yeah in front so say the counter app starts with like counter of it's a record with one field field name counter and the field type is int right And let's say for some silly reason, we say, okay, well, we now want to release a new version of the app, but we've changed the counter field to type float. All right. And the question would be like, how do we migrate from one to the other? And so, yeah, when we say it's just a function, what we're saying is like, yeah, we want a function that takes a record with a field counter type int and returns a record with a field counter type float. So returning the new record, you basically just construct the record. But for the value of counter, right, you've got an integer and now you need a float. So you kind of go off and you find a function, um, you know, what does, like what function takes an integer and returns a float. And that's the function that you would use. So I can't remember off the top of my head, is that from int or to float? One of those two, probably have to look that up.
2: (laughs) To float, I'm pretty sure. Is what I would try, and then if the, if I get a compiler, <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs>
1: this is a guess guess driven development. Is how we operate. Um, <laughs> yeah. So two float, two float, right from basics. So it's in it's in it's in the call. So yeah, what, that that is in an essence. It like that's the end of Evergreen migrations at, at, at like a simplified level. So basically, any any model that you have in your backend. Or front end. In Lambda era, it's both. But if you if you're just thinking of Elm, like in the Elm architecture, whatever your model type is, if you change that type, the question is, well, what what sensible like what is a sensible transition? What is a sensible transformation between whatever it used to be and whatever the new value is? And on the front end, there is some interesting stuff. Like some of the some of the problems I posed in my talk was like, you know, do you need to tell a user that things are upgrading? Like sometimes for a minor change or maybe for new features, additive stuff you don't need to. But you know, maybe it would be kind of weird if the user was halfway filling out a form and then suddenly a form field like disappears. But maybe it's not. You know, maybe it's not a big deal. Like, is it is it any more or less confusing than the page breaking and them having to refresh? But yeah, the cool thing is that like when, once you have this idea and then that evergreen setup is um, possible it becomes a bit magical right and it's something i love about lamdara and i'd really love it you know occasionally people will come and tell me so someone at elm camp came and came and told me like oh yeah you know i was making a game and some friends were testing it. and they were like oh this thing doesn't work and he was like hold on i'll fix that and they are like all right that's <laughs> deployed and like all of their apps like updated you know without them doing anything and he's like cool that's done and they were like wow and I, yeah that's so that i'm like yeah that that feels right to me i feel like that's how it should be that that feels awesome so yeah, I think that's the joy of
0: it. That is very unique. So so you're doing a hot reload on the client and applying the the new code changes with that safe migration that migrates the front end model and then migrates any incoming front end messages. So it, it hot swaps that in, is that correct?
1: yeah that's right so basically we take the concept of it. so the theoretical concept of evergreen is really just a function right it's saying we've got this old type with an actual value of that old type that's live and then you know we want to go to this new type in the new app so we write a function that helps us migrate that live value right from one to the other and then once you have that tool it's like, what do you do with it? And so in Lambda era, what we say, what we do with it is like, well, we apply it to every value primitive that you have in Lambda era. And there's six of them, right? There's the front end model, there's the back end model, there's a the front end message, the back end message, and then the two messages that connect the two to back end and to front end. And so we apply this uh, in Lambda era, this idea that anytime you change a type in any of those six core types, we go, cool, I, we can see you've changed this type. You know, please write this migration. You know, here's the, here's the harness for it. And you know, if you do, and it type checks, then we go, great. If you deploy this, then yeah, we can do exactly what you've said. We can, on both the front end and the back end, load the new version, um, take the model from the old app, migrate it into the new app, and now you've got the new app running, and it was all kind of smooth and hot and live and delightful. So yeah, that's the deal.
0: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I, I mean, if you wanted to, like, so uh, you have... You know, as you said, it's a function from one version of a model to another. And and we should probably, just to to paint a picture here more explicitly, you have uh, your your types module in a Lambdaera app, which defines, as you described, those six core types, back-end model, front-end model, back-end message, front-end message, and then the two back-end and two front-end custom types, which d- define sending data back and forth. But then those essentially get versioned under these namespaces, v1, v2, v3, as you change your types. So you have that module with all those six core types defined and any supporting types that you might have that are used in your backend model, in your frontend model.
1: Yep, the subservient types, yep.
0: Right, and that all... So th- those are all versioned. So, so now instead of just types being some fuzzy thing that you're like, oh yeah, I think it was different in a different version. You actually have every version of your types for your Lambda application that you've ever deployed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the it's funny, it's like the fundamental idea is really, really simple, but then like the practicality of the tooling to implement that simple idea ended up being quite complicated. And I think this is this is this is kind of where, and I talked about this as well in the talk. Like part of the pitch for part of the pitch for Lambda was that this idea behind this kind of live reload migrations. I think it was. It seems to me that it is most compelling when your entire system has this philosophy behind it, because if you can, like if you're if you're tracking your entire system, your front end and your back end and everything between it's then that the tooling is really nice, right? Without that setup, you would have kind of what you've just described, which is like, you know, there's no good way to know what the authority is on these types. So you can't, like, it's not very easy for you to, you'd have to use discipline to be like, okay, you know, I've changed a type, therefore let's go and copy paste our types and let's try and namespace. You know, you'd have to do this. Whereas with Lambda, because everything's integrated, like the local tooling you know, when you de- when you run a check, like a pre-check for a deploy, it knows to talk to your production instances and go, okay, well, that, that's what's de- deployed currently. That's what the type hashes are. Do we have a change? Okay, we do. Let's automate the snapshotting. Let's automate, you know, giving you some feedback about what's happening, what types have changed so that, you know, the developer experience that, that you know, I've been chasing in Lambda is that you don't have to think about it, right? Um, so in the early versions of Lambdaura, you you had to think about it, you had to track it. Um, and yeah, as of the latest release, we are now trying to to make that as seamless and kind of carefree as possible so that you can, with confidence, be like, you know what, I'm going to re-architect my whole backend. I'm going to change the whole backend model. I'm going to move things around. I'm going to change dictionaries to sets and nest things into custom. I'll do whatever I want. And the idea is that you can kind of do that. And then Lambda will be like, cool, that's cool. Um, here's what changed, all right? Like this is now you need to tell me how to get from where you were to where you are. Um, and if you can figure that out, if you can make it compile, then cool. Like probably this is gonna, well, from a type perspective, it's gonna migrate. Um, but obviously we can't guarantee that you haven't put dict.empty or you know set.empty where you shouldn't have and that you will lose some data. So you, you can still write the wrong migration in the in the um, In the business sense, but you can't write you can't forget to migrate a column you know you can't delete a column and still have code that's referring to it right so in that sense, I think it's a step up from the traditional transactional database migrations that I think most of us are used to
2: Have you heard of people writing unit tests for their migrations or is it usually straightforward enough where people
1: are yeah, no, that's a good question. I think I think the question's been expressed before. I don't think there's any reason you couldn't. There's a slightly awkward technical reason in LambdaRho why it would be a bit weird. Um, it's because Lamdera yes, oh, actually, it's not. It's not specific to There There's a question of, you know, we've got these type snapshots, right? So, so we snapshot our types every time things change, but we want, yeah, we want to snapshot anything that we de- anything that's changed and we deploy, we want to snapshot that. However, because of the way that Elm's namespacing works, we want in production for our migrations to result in values of the type of our current types file, not of values of the type of the last snapshot file, if that makes sense. So maybe to put this another way, if I define a custom type called ice cream, with the variants chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. And I put that in my types.elm. And then in Lambda, I go to deploy. Lambda will go, ooh, um, let's say it's our first deploy. Lambda goes, ooh, it's your first deploy. I'm gonna snapshot those types into evergreen slash v1 slash types.elm. So now in this in this v1 types.elm, there's an evergreen.v1.icecream type that has the exact same variance.
2: That is what's going to be um
1: deployed the 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 ones with v1 yeah so both actually get deployed but the v1s there the v1s on the first deploy only exist to be referenced in future deploys when the types change but in the current version we still want ice cream values of the types.elm right because that's what our whole application uses but in the future when we now deploy version 2 and let's say for ice cream uh, we had chocolate vanilla strawberry and let's say we add mango right? So now we're going, okay, this type is now different. It has an additional variant. The migration that gets generated is a migration from version one to version two, right? And so we we decide what we do with those values. Probably we do nothing, or maybe we say, hey, you know, actually, Everybody that told us that they put uh, strawberry in the first version, they all emailed us and they said, you know, we hate strawberry. We actually want mango. So can you please add a mango option, but also migrate any of our strawberry choices to mango, All right. So that would be an example where that function, when you migrate the value, you might, case. You might case the old type, you know, on chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, and chocolate and vanilla, you would map to chocolate and vanilla in the new type. But maybe strawberry variants, we would map to mango in the new type, right? So that's how you could do data changes or data transformations in your migrations. But yeah, we're getting a bit into the weeds here. But the trick is that that new type will become a snapshot version two, right? And your migration has to type check between version one and version two. But actually, when we deploy, we get sneaky, and we don't map it to version 2. We actually map it to types.elm, because that's what you need in your application. So we do this little, we do this little swapsy, so that you're <laughs> always getting the types that your application actually uses. But at the same time, we're preparing that snapshot, that's, that snapshot in time to go, OK, when we deployed version 2, this is what the types were, so that that's ready and committed and in your repository such that if you change it in the future, we don't have to try to go back and remember what they were. We already snapshotted what they were when you deployed. Is that making any sense? I realize that's a bit, that's a bit squirrelly. It makes sense to me.
2: Nice. So you said that every time there's a change in the, the types, in those six core types, um, you need to write a migration. One, it's only when they change, right? If nothing has changed then you don't need to write a, to write a migration.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So that's a, that's a little optimization that um, okay, yeah, that has, which is that even though in Elm those types aren't the same, if you, when we snapshot the types, the type tree that gets generated um, generates identical encoders and decoders. So we can keep, you know if, a, if you have a version 2 snapshot right, and then you deploy version three, four, five, six, seven, and nothing's changed, we can keep decoding straight into your types.elm type because we know that those encoders and decoders are identical from the binary format, right? So it's only when it's only when the types do change that we know, OK, that will mean that the encoders and decoders will become different, which means we need a function to get between the old value and the new value to keep everything sane.
2: And the second question is, could you write a migration even if there's no type change? For instance, uh, everyone hates strawberries. So let's write migration <laughs> that goes to, to Mango without having a type change. Yeah,
1: so you can't, ah, but with an asterisk. <laughs> you can't with an asterisk, you can. So you can't change nothing and ask like Evergreen and Lambdaera to be like, please let me do a migration anyway. But you can just add a dummy field and then Evergreen will happily be like, oh, you need a migration, right? And so, so the trick is that when, this is a technical, maybe, a shortfall that we might tighten in, in the future. But right now, whenever you get asked to write a migration, you actually get placeholders for all six types. But by default, it'll it'll tag the migrations for um, the types that haven't changed as unchanged. So you could, if you wanted to, still apply a migration whenever there is a migration, if that makes sense. So if there's a migration to any type, there's a migration to all six types. That's just the way that it's implemented in Lambda right now. Um so you could do data transformations like across the board. But yeah, yeah, it's you you have to get Lamdera, evergreen implementation to think that something's changed in order for it to be like fine. Okay, let's let's get some migrations involved.
2: If the current version is V6 and I manually create a V7 folder, would that trick Lambdera into
1: generating a migration? No. So if you manually created Lambda right now, what would happen? If you manually created a version 7 and then you tried to deploy it. In production, it would say, "Hey, I wasn't expecting there to be a migration, but I see a V7 migration file. I don't know what's going on. Like something, something's bad. So it'll it'll <laughs> try there." <laughs> <Bay Lab. laughs>
0: so let's say that you wanted to do the uh, the strawberry to mango migration in a more polite opt-in way. So the migrations files they give you the opportunity to, I mean, to arbitrarily change the model. The backend model, the front end model. So you could you could make whatever changes, you know, as Yarun is describing, you know, changing a model when the data hasn't really changed, and you need to sort of get Lambda to create a migration file for you. But once you do that, you can make any data change. It doesn't necessarily have to be to get the types to fit together for the new format.
1: That's correct. Yeah,
0: and you also get a command for your for your backend and front end. You can trigger a command as part of that migration. So, so let's talk through that a little bit. If, if we wanted to do the polite version of the strawberry to mango, where we're saying, hey, unfortunately, strawberry is no longer an option, but so we, we are inviting you to opt into this, and now when you log in to the ice cream shop, you're gonna see a, an announcement banner that says, we need you to choose a flavor. So how would you model that with, a, with an evergreen migration?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think 90% of the answer to that question has got nothing to do with Evergreen. The question first is, how would we model this in an L map? So kind of what, if I reflect back at you, what I'm hearing is in terms of state. So there's something now on the user profile, right? Which I would say a Boolean, which is something like requested, what would would we call it? Like, please revalidate ice cream preferences question, right? Or show revalidate ice cream preference question, right? And that's a that's a Boolean, true or false. And so we add this to our front-end model. Actually, we add it to our back-end model, Let's, because we've got accounts here, we've got user accounts, right? We, we've only saved preferences for users that have logged in, right, otherwise how will we know who they are when they come back? So we say, okay, every user profile has this new flag, right, and we add that to the back-end model. And then we say, okay, in the front end model now, uh, suddenly we get type errors right in the front end model because in this case it's lambda error. Our types are shared, um, you know. So when a user logs in on the front end, the session hydrates their account, um, and so so that value will come into the front end, and we go into the view and we say, okay, cool. If user dot you know show revalidate ice cream preference is equal to true, then show them this little bit of UI that asks them for this question. Else. Let's just show nothing. We'll just leave it, right? And then maybe as part of that UI, we say, hey, like it looks like you've um, you've chosen you know strawberry in the f- past and you know you you told us that you wanted to choose a different flavor when we had more available. That's now available. like click here to go to your profile page and and edit your preferences. And I think is that it from an app perspective? I think that's probably it.
0: Yeah, and I guess you could uh, decide whether you want, Your custom type to to include strawberry and have it be deprecated or remove strawberry and then set it as mango. But then you're going to need to have some application logic in the appropriate places so you don't accidentally ship them their monthly flavor of mango before they've chosen. And maybe, um, you know, the monthly shipment process instead of automatically sending it is gonna send an email and say, hey, you you need to log in to change this because we no longer have this flavor. If you want your shipments to resume, then please log in and select select something. So you know, so as you say it a lot of it is just modeling the problem in a sort of high level way.
1: Yeah, so let's say you wanted to. So we're still we're nowhere near evergreen yet, right? We're still in our application realm. So if you wanted to apply, like make make impossible states impossible, you know, if you wanted to be like, actually, you know what? Like, what's the business rationale? Like, so let's invent some. Say the business rationale is enough people told us that they hate strawberry that we're discontinuing strawberry, right? So maybe we go okay. Well, we need to remove the strawberry variant, but we need somewhere to migrate these people to, right? So maybe we turn. Um, you know, ice cream preference into a custom type itself. Maybe, well, maybe we turn it into a maybe, right? And nothing means they haven't selected, so we can't send them any shipments, right? Because we don't know what flavor. Or well, maybe we change it into a custom type where we say, you know, not selected or ice cream selected in this new type that only has the variants that we offer. And then a third state, which is like needs revalidation or, or you know, ex strawberry lover or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: but I thought there was no yeah. one who likes strawberries. <laughs> yeah, it's an impossible state. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> so yeah, we 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 kind of do whatever modeling, and and I think this is the nice bit. Then this is a nice bit that we go. We at this point, I think, unlike the way that you do it in in kind of traditional full stack applications, is like you're you're simultaneously thinking about your data structure and the migration at the same time. Whereas in, in Elm, like via lambda specifically in that context, the idea is like, well, just forget about it. Just just model what new state of affairs you would love to have in your app. Like what is the actual value set up that makes sense? And then we go, great, now that we've done, we've chosen whatever one of those it was. Now we go, okay, lambda deploy um, or, or lambda check, like lambda deploy invokes lambda check first. And Lumbero goes, oh, I can see your types have changed. Okay, I'm going to go and attempt um, to make some migrations for you. I'm going to do my best. So that in the latest version, it goes, not only am I going to generate the scaffold, I'm going to do a best effort generation for you. I'm going to look at the tree of your types in the old version, the tree of your types in the new version. I'm going to try diff them, like zip them together. And you know where they don't look like they've changed, I'm going to try and just uh, intelligently make all those, those choices for you um, to keep everything the same. Uh, mainly, the concern is migrating custom types because, as we know in Elm, two equally semantically the same custom types in two different modules aren't actually equal, right? So, uh, unlike two, two uh, semantically identical record types in two different modules, are equal, right? So, Evergreen goes, Okay, I'm, I'm going to automate all of those uh, kind of crud transformations for you. But in the bits where things have definitely changed and I can't, you know, I can't do anything reasonable, I'm going to put placeholders for you and go, Okay, here, I've gotten to ice cream preference. This has changed. You know, it used to be this custom type from version one. Now it's this different custom type from version two. How, how do you want to do with this? You know, how, how do you want to get this value across until you write the code that says, great, I've done all my business logic, everything makes sense and you know, our, I guess we've we've invented some sort of ice cream subscription store here in this in, in this um, in this <laughs> Sounds analogy. Sounds like a great business. Yeah, if i being um, honest, except
0: for yeah. the free frozen shipments. That could be. a, a Yeah, nightmare, that's tough. Otherwise. Tough,
1: but yeah, I, want, <laughs> I definitely want ice cream now. Uh, but anyway, yeah so, yeah. so we've done we've done all the business logic, <laughs> and then now um, it's kind of like cool. How do we want to get from one value to the other? And the nice thing is, once we've done all of this you know, it type checks. So it goes, yeah, cool. Okay. That makes sense. You've you've successfully done the transition. And I suppose going back to the to the unit test question, it's like, yeah, if if that was a very complicated transition and you wanted to have certain invariants that hold, yeah, there's no reason why that function that you wrote in there for that particular um, part of the migration you could put that function to the side you could put it elsewhere um you could include it from the tests and then you could do all your scenarios and, and test you know i put in these old versions i expect these new versions is my migration kind of making sense and i think that's nice as well because you get to stay in elm right if you think of that in any other system now you're mocking Perhaps the database you have to you have to if you're not mocking the database you actually have to boot a database in your test setup you have to set the first versions you have to do the migration of the schema then you have to load the value you know there'd be a lot to get that working Um, whereas in Elm we get like a lot of confidence from the type checking and then you can cover the rest of the ground in tests um, if you need to.
2: Whenever there's a type change, uh, you copy everything into like a v two.
1: You you copy. All the types or do you copy all the code? No, just the types. So what Lambda... So the implementation currently is Lambda kind of recursively trolls through your types from their known... So in Lambda you have to put the core types in a specific location, right? So Lambda goes, okay, I know where they have to be. I start from there and I kind of recursively troll through the type definition and any type definitions it references, Um, and it kind of progressively sucks those out and as it goes it namespaces them and it writes them into the snapshots file so you get yeah like an extracted copy of your types tree for every single core type yeah okay
2: now there's a a really good feature in elm um which i don't know if you've ever heard us talk about which is opaque types how does it work for opaque types can you migrate them can you not and uh,
1: yeah this is a great question so sadly right now there is a way around this we could add compiler support and do some magic but right now you sadly need to open up the constructors within your code base so there is a risk do you mean only in migrations or always always so the reason the reason for that is if you consider like so let's go back to our our ice cream flavors say you made that an opaque type all right so obviously. you couldn't, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Nobody is allowed to specifically say what flavor they like. They have to go through the flavor constructor function, right? Okay, so maybe that's what you love. You're like, yes, this is the best way to do this. So in this, in this maybe convoluted example, think about now how you express a migration for this, right? So I'm asking you, I've, I've written the function signature. So the function signature is from v1.icecream to v2.icecream, right? And into the value, into the migration, you get a value called old. That's what I call it by default, right? Old is the name of the old ice cream flavor. So this is, this is going to be a specific instance, like a specific value instance of that type, right? The first thing you would normally do in migrations of a custom type is you would be case old of, and then you would pattern match on all the variants, right? And then you would return new variants. But in your case, if you've made an opaque type, what do you do now?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's why I was wondering like, hmm, I I think there's some problem with the opaque types. And I I seem to remember that, yeah, the opaque types didn't work well with Dandera or with the migration system.
1: If you really, really wanted to, you could write specific code to try. Yeah, so you would have to write like special functions that were like basically constructor functions for your new types. And then maybe you would inside your actual um, normal Elm code, like within that module that has access to the constructors, you might write like a deconstructing or put the migration file directly in there, right? So you could try and keep all of your types opaque and hidden and put the actual migration function in the file somehow, right? The thing that gets really weird and what I discourage with Lambda, though it is possible, is that obviously migrations are like a point in time thing. And so part of the reason we do snapshots is as your app continues to evolve, your code's going to change, right? So the weird thing is, is if you put the migration function into the file that defines those constructors, in the next version, you're going to have to change the type that's in that file. And suddenly those migration functions that are referring to the types that are in the same file are wrong. So the question is like, okay, well now where do I put them? You want to put them into the history, but the history can't access the constructors, right? So the problem today is, okay, with those types, lambda forces you to open it up. That's kind of the easier way. Uh, Long-term is the way around it. Yes, the way around it would be at the compiler level for us to go when we're compiling, when we see that we're compiling a module that is within the Evergreen namespace, magically the compiler unhinges its export restrictions and pretends like as if everything is exported. So then only in the migrations context, you can reference a opaque type constructor and you won't get a type error saying oh this is you know unexposed or hidden but then in your main code base um anywhere you referenced one you would get the type error as usual so that's the idea i don't know how difficult that would be i haven't delved into it yet but at least in theory i think we could improve those ergonomics and you know get back um the same kind of opaque type protections that we have today so yeah to, to lovers of opaque types i'm sorry you <laughs> we there's a little bit of a compromise there from you know ergonomics and and um, language restrictions but yeah i think for now it's 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 probably not the end of the world but we have we have a way to to improve that in the future not too many people have complained about it so far, and by not too many people, I mean zero people. Except for <laughs> you, right I'm complaining. Here is <laughs> f- my official complaint, Mario. Okay, so far we have officially had one person complaining. So there is one people demanding. <laughs> First this the
0: strawberry, now opaque types. What next? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but also like with opaque types, what
2: what we tend to represent with the opaque types is uh, invariants, right? So there's the actual data and there's the invariance. So like, even if the, the types matched, if we have an opaque type that make sure you have selected three types of ice cream and then in another version, while it's only supposed to be two now, like, yeah, there's, you have some kind of revalidation to do anyway, or which you, yeah, not, I'm not sure how you would do it, but yeah.
1: Yeah, so there's, so there's one interesting part of um, this. where well, this actually has come up. So uh, there's some kind of... <laughs> there's some a little bit undocumented auto-generation support for specific package types that are opaque and people kind of commonly use. So for example, something like non-empty. Now, the thing I, I don't think we've spoken about yet is when, I'm, when I say that Lambda extracts the type hierarchy we only do that to the extent of uh, user-defined types, right? So if you're referencing like non-empty string, or like the string type from the non-empty package, we won't- Which
2: isn't a pick type?
1: Yes, yeah. Okay. So you have, a, you have a constructor where you have to give it a, a string that has something in it, and it'll only return a non-empty string value if you give it a non-empty string, right? Um, so once you have a value of that type, you know that it's definitely non-empty. So, yeah, in that case, lambda isn't snapshotting the package type. There's a few reasons for that that I'm not sure entirely worth going into. But long story short, it it focuses just on the user types now. Mainly, actually, the best reason for it is the opaque type discussion that we're having. The best reason for it is we can't really do migrations on package types because if it's something like non-empty, they don't offer us the internals. Of that package, right? So, so what I do is I generate some code that basically does what the sensible default would be if you knew you had a well. In the other thing is that package types don't change, at least if the package version hasn't changed. So, if we already have a value of non-empty, we don't need to migrate it. But there is there has been some cases where uh, okay, so a better type than non-empty string, which is a uh, kind of monomorphic, or one that isn't. Uh, one that would be polymorphic would be like say the any dict one of the any dict uh, packages right like so packages that let you define a custom type as your key and then it lets you do like you know lookups and inserts on this dictionary that you can't do with the vanilla dictionary implementation because it requires keys to be comparable right so if you use one of these types now you've got like a parametric type right you are putting your own user defined custom type into this third party package So if you've changed that type, when it comes to a migration, you may have any dict ice cream version one, and now you need to go to any dict ice cream version two, right? So you need to extract all of the values from that first dictionary and then do the migration and then create a new dictionary. So for some of these types, it's kind of like that's annoying and it's mechanical. And we know pretty much what people are gonna do, uh, especially if that custom type hasn't changed. Right, so Lambdara in some cases will detect certain common uh, library types, and it'll try and do the sensible migration for you if your custom type that's being used there hasn't changed. Is that making sense? Am I tracking?
2: Yeah. Does that mean that uh, if I were to make a new package with uh, a new data structure like any dict, that I would? It would be better if I contacted you to
1: to add support for that, or. Well, no, I definitely wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't want to encourage a perspective in the ARM community that everyone should be thinking of LambdaRah concerns in their packages. I would rather tackle it when when it came up. But um, yeah, what would make it easier for a LambdaRah user to use your type if it was if it's a type that doesn't contain user types, then I don't think it matters because they can just put the old ones in. You want, but if you are publishing a package that yet does contain the ability for users to put in custom types. Then putting in the ability to migrate, so if you give them a, like if there was a map function that sensibly made sense where they could give you a function of type A to B and that let them migrate your type A to your type B in the package, then that would definitely make it easier for them to construct migrations. But otherwise, yeah, an ability to somehow exhaustively deconstruct values in a meaningful way and exhaustively construct values in a meaningful way of your package type, I think would be the key primitives that people would need to be able to express this idea of going from an old type to a new type for any conceivable type change, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I could also imagine for, um, for, for some use cases having, you know, instead of directly having an opaque type, if you really wanted to like model your application logic with, with an opaque type, especially in the front end with the back end there might be more performance concerns in some instances but you could sort of have your um, your sort of raw type stored let's say in your front-end model and then you could have um, your you know you could have a wrapper that takes it from your core type to your you know the the raw type to your opaque types so you could sort of have a function that transforms the Raw types to opaque types, so you're immediately as soon as you're actually working with those types, it's turning it into into some opaque type that you can work with those guarantees. But then, you know, as you're as you're modifying it, you also need a way to to transform that too. So it's 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 a challenging problem. But a, but that idea you have of uh, being able to reach into the opaque types in the context of a migration. Is very intriguing, <clears throat> and it does. I mean, it's a it's a an interesting philosophical place to be. But overall, the the feeling that I'm getting, what I'm realizing with evergreen migrations, is that so much of what happens with um, you know the traditional way that many people may may have worked with migrating, you know, between a some sort of JavaScript front-end and a Rails back-end or whatever it might be, the uh, The traditional experience that I've had doing conceptually migrations, maybe there are some, you know, there are probably some back-end migrations involved and then you need to handle that with different versions of the front-end, is you, um, you very carefully queue up the changes you're going to make. You very carefully, you know, test your actual migrations on some Test data, and maybe you sort of hope that that in between state works out okay and don't think too carefully about it, or maybe you think very carefully about it. But even so, even if you're thinking very carefully about it, you're thinking very carefully about an implicit contract. Whereas what I'm realizing is that what Lambda gives you is an explicit contract for all of these pieces, and they're all living in the same ecosystem. And, you know, if you, um, you could make something implicit in a LymeDara app by depending on something in the outside world. But for the things that are self-contained within a LymeDara backend and front frontend code base, it's an explicit contract. And it has the Elm type system and all the guarantees that come with that of type safety and purity and no escape hatches and immutability and all these things. So you put all those pieces together and what you get is an explicit contract for managing the entire migration, which is a really interesting feature to have. I mean, that's kind of a game changer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So for, for people thinking about like their traditional migration setup, I think it's kind of the, the the pitch of Evergreen is similar to the Elm pitch of, against JavaScript. If we're like, let's take for it comes up in a lot of different areas, but let's take like JavaScript, you know, decoders. Right. So the idea is that you go, OK, well, there's like a whole, you know, we know, we know, that first name is always gonna be there. Like we know this. In quotes, know this, right? Then at some point in the future, someone changes it, and now our code's broken, right? So like in Elm, it's like, yeah, yeah, I know you know this, but no. Like you've got to, <laughs> you got to tell me how does this decode? I'm gonna, I'm gonna validate it. Okay, we validate it with the decoder. Now we know. Now we know for sure, right? Like it's not just uh, like you said. We've turned that implicit thing into the explicit. And so I think there's a lot of stuff with migrations. And part of why I was really excited about this is like there's all this, there's all this cognitive overhead that you have to keep, right? Because there's nothing snapshotting, nothing keeping your types for you. You have to remember when you're building this new thing, like exactly what you've changed, exactly what you've added, exactly what you've removed, to the point where like I think it's it's kind of nuts that the industry response seems to me, the industry standard response is like Oh well obviously the sensible solution is to never remove anything ever again and that's like i get it like that's that's probably the only way that we can cut that at least that part of the problem out right in like the traditional kind of stack or if you're working at scale right you go okay we never remove everything never deprecate it that's why you have stuff like you know protobufs so it's like yeah you've allocated a field well that's there forever in your payloads every future payload even if you never use it that byte range is now allocated right you'd have to do a major version deprecation or shift your, your schema to a new endpoint to, to change that or to optimize it and so, yeah, the nice thing that we get there is that all of that stuff becomes explicit. But also, on the other hand, uh, something I think we haven't talked about is that gap problem, right? So I talk about it in my talk, which is what if you have, if you don't have a system where everything's integrated together, and especially if you work at a company where potentially different teams can deploy different things at different times, right? You merge this change in for your backend. Maybe if you're lucky, I mean, not if you're lucky, uh, that's the wrong word. Let's say your company has chosen, chosen to have a monorepo, maybe you've got one pull request, right? So the thing you merge is the front end and the back end changes at the same time. So at least that step is synchronized. But worst case, you have two different repositories, right? So those things could merge at different times. In both cases, regardless of whether you merge at the same time or whether you merged at two different times, the deploy could still happen at two different times, right? And in both systems, they're not necessarily synchronized from a user perspective. So it is very possible that you have a situation where you have version one front end and version one backend in production, and you get a version two front end that's trying to talk to a version one backend for a moment in time, or you could have the version two backend launches faster. So you have version one front end that's trying to talk to a future version two backend and that, that inverses as well, right? So you could have a version two backend that's trying to respond to a version one frontend or a version two frontend that's trying to respond back to a a version one backend. So there's four variations there, right? There's the outbound payloads and there's the inbound payloads. And you could have failures on both sides. And I think generally the thing that like we kind of think about, okay, what tools or techniques can we apply to solve that? And I think generally the answer is none, right? Like there isn't really anything we can do to get explicit guarantees. One thing we can do is say we never remove fields, right? But we can still get the wrong semantics, right? Like if it may be compatible that a version two front-end message gets ingested by the version one backend, but it may process the wrong business logic, you know, stuff that we've said or should now change, right? It, it should be version two. Version two should be handling, you know, strawberry responses coming in and becoming mango, but we've actually gotten you know, a mango response in the future, or we've gotten a strawberry response in the future and a version one backend has created yet another subscription to strawberry, which shouldn't be possible anymore. So yeah, one, one thing, um, this is why I mentioned this before about, um, I think evergreen works really well in a system where you have full and total control of both the front end and the backend migration synchronicity, synchronicity, I'm not sure the correct pronunciation of that word, uh, so that, you know, we apply this evergreen concept to everything in lockstep. Right? So we know that you only... There's never going to be a scenario where we're getting events from the future to older versions. Um, everything's always being pushed forward. And so, yeah, Lambda has like a, like a migration kind of um, like a staging thing where it basically hot loads everything in. everything's prepped and ready. All the new versions are ready. Everything's live. And then there's like a sudden lockstep where everything in the same instant as much as possible kind of all slides into the future. But if we've missed anything... You know, if there's any old front end that comes online later, or there's a backend that lags for some reason or whatever, I mean, th- that's technically not possible. Let's say in the future we had, you know, distributed setup and it was possible. was so a backend that was lagging because that all those new versions have this migration thing set up. The first thing they do be like, Oh, I'm receiving a version one, but I'm actually on version two. Let's run that through the migration first. And so now you always have consistent, like that's consistently being executed in the latest version regardless of, of, of kind of what's at play in that synchronicity so i think that that is um, a really difficult problem to solve outside of the context of a type safe pure immutable and exhaustive language and i think that's what makes this thing so nice in elm like evergreen in elm i think is super delightful it just it just sheds all these delightful properties and so yeah we, we leverage that as much as possible as we can in lambda
2: I don't think you you would need the type safe parts, but it definitely helps.
1: Yeah, it definitely. <laughs> you could, with
0: discipline, get the same effects. Yeah. But yeah, right. yeah, yeah, you could. And it makes the contract more <laughs> explicit. Hmm. I I find that like thinking about migrations in this paradigm, like it it's making me think of the data modeling in a different way. As you said, like more more focused on the ideal data modeling, which often just a vanilla map makes us do this too, I think, right, just think about the data modeling in a, I don't know, a less hacky way, like just what would be the ideal way to model this? And then you just kind of do that and and let everything flow from there. And like for, for the, you know, strawberry ice cream deprecation, like I was talking about that strategy you could use of, you know, leaving, the user's flavor selected flavor as, as mango and then having some separate data that tracks that it's actually it's actually not mango right and if you're doing if if you're doing a sort of migration in this more old school way where you have um, these implicit contracts then that that's not really any worse than modeling it modeling it explicitly but if you if you have the ability to to have all these pieces connect together very explicitly, I would tend to think of it differently. I would tend to think of it as I want my data to reflect exactly what it is. So I would tend to want to wanna say, you know, maybe it's like a variant of flavors, or maybe it's like a wrapper around that. So you have you either have like a selected flavor or you have a legacy selection, in which case shipments can't proceed or whatever, but I would want to model that state very explicitly because otherwise you might end up with a code path where you aren't considering that case. And that ends up happening all the time with sort of supporting these um, these migrations and these conceptual changes to the domain in a code base is you don't consider how a change affects the entire system. And you end up with all these sort of conditionals scattered around, where you could easily forget something. But as with any Elm custom type, you have you know when some when an Elm custom type changes, it forces you to consider the impact of that change everywhere, even if it's trivial. It forces you to explicitly um, you know recognize that that it's changed. And so instead of just scattering some conditionals around and saying, oh, if it's this weird extra Boolean that I need to check for that it's this weird case. Like that ends up being really unpleasant to maintain and a huge source of bugs and also a huge source of like, you know, the more veteran programmers on that team who know this code base are like, oh, like talk to talk to this one programmer, you know, they know all the ins and outs of this code base. They know all the conditionals you need to be sure to check for. They know all the strange Booleans in the system that you need to check for anytime you do something. But if you model it as a custom type where you're saying exactly what it is, like a user doesn't necessarily have a flavor, they may have some legacy thing. And why does that happen? And maybe, maybe you get to a point where you can drop that at a certain point. Maybe you, you have, you are able to confirm that. Everybody has migrated off of that and then you can migrate off of that and and reflect that. But it really allows you to think in terms of your ideal domain modeling instead of hacking something together and throwing some conditionals in there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is, this is slightly a tangent away from Evergreen and I kind of see this as more a benefit of... Lambda itself, or at least a benefit of the idea of like, what if we didn't have this disconnection between the way that we choose to store our data and the way that we choose to model our data, right? And so, like, if you're already familiar with Elm and you have experienced like the delight of um, Elm's type system in in the large, right? I reckon in most cases you can model like your view of the world really nicely, right? Especially like with custom types, and so there's this, I think when you're in a more traditional code base, I think at least the way that I'm thinking a more traditional code base is like, I might model those invariants with a new custom type on the front end. But usually I, I start to, like, especially for something like this, right? Where, where we go, okay, we're discontinuing this product, right? The marketing team has said like, could we, you know, could we do this? Like it would make our lives easier. Could you do this stuff in the UI? But you know, like if it's going to take more than, a day and it's going to impact our backlog like we just don't like just don't bother we'll just manually send some emails or we'll do something all right? like because engineering time i think becomes scarce and precious in organizations usually so you know, if you sit down you're like, okay, well, yeah, you know, we could try and manage this for you. Okay, front end, easy, that's fine. We'll just put this new state and we'll do that. But okay, so we have got to change the profile system in the back end. We're going to have to add this new field. We're going to have to do that migration. Oh, but this other system uses that. We have to make sure, you know, like in the, you're thinking about all these layers and the different systems that you're going to have to coordinate. Whereas in Lambdaera, you can kind of go, okay, let's add this field to the thing. And bam, we forced all these failures across the... You know, we can see immediately what the impact is. Like we're driving, what is our to-do list in terms of implementing this feature? And we can see straight away like, oh yeah, you know what, we forgot. This is used in this module and it causes heaps of... Uh, you know what, guys, this isn't going to be worth it. Or we can say, oh, I got two type errors. Like, no, I reckon we can do this. You know, and, and you're not thinking about all these extra steps about how... That change or set of changes is going to be translated into these kind of primitives, like into this primitive obsession that we talk about, or like, you know, Boolean blindness or, you know, just there's generally this idea where we where we have to dumb down to types, which we kind of, I mean, until we uh, are graced with uh, this much anticipated future release of, of, of Evan's work and whatever's happening in the database side, right? But at the moment, there isn't a really great way to put custom types natively into Postgres, for example, right? So on the projects so I work on, with Elm in the front end, your custom types become something entirely different. There's a lot of glue around modeling that and d- modeling those changes. And so I think a lot of the time doing silly little things like that, it's kind of like, ah, too hard basket. Let's not bother trying to let's not mess with the stack, Whereas I think in the Lambda situation, it's like, yeah, let's mess with the stack, let's let's actively let's actively mess with it because you know later on the compilers are going to be like, all right, cool, I saw you messed with X Y Z, can you please fix that? Tell me what you want to do with the migration. So I think that yeah, that's a cool part. I, I'm excited for that on my own projects because that's what I want. You know, when I'm dealing with my hobby projects or I'm picking up a project I haven't touched for months, and I'm like, oh, I want to add all this and change this and do that. I want to have that joy of of not now worrying like oh is my modeling correct so i need to fix how i've set my stuff up in postgres am i going to have sql queries somewhere that are now wrong yeah i i really like what that gives you from what evergreen gives you or the evergreen ideology kind of gives you in that kind of full stack elm context so yeah and and lambda pitch rant at this point <laughs>
0: <laughs> no it's it's amazing. And Jeroen mentioned the idea of testing before, like that, that also strikes me as something that, you know, I mean, for a team that really, really wants to robustly manage their migrations and data integrity and all these sorts of things, just having evergreen migrations is huge. And like, you know, makes the whole process so much more explicit. And you, you could, You could probably write some sort of test manually for that. But I could imagine some sort of like automated things around even like testing the UI after a migration with, you know, Lambda program tests or, you know, testing the hot swapping. There are so many things you could imagine conceptually when you just have these pieces fitting together in this way. So it's really intriguing, really exciting stuff.
1: Yeah, definitely. So that 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 kind of thing, like being able to test migrations, is not something that's easily done today in Lambda. Like if you're in Lambda live, like the live development environment locally, and you've changed all your types, like you'll be working on an app with the latest version, right? But there's there's not a super easy way. You can, with some effort, do it manually, and and I've I've helped people try and figure that out. Like the the, the pieces are there, but it's not ergonomic. But yeah, that, I think that would be really really cool in future for you to be like, hey, I want to pull down my production model and run it through the migration and then I want to play with that result locally and see what that looks like. Um, So that would be one cool improvement. Another one that that, and so this is kind of like a full disclosure on a downside of this approach. Right. So something that's kind of come up recently, there's been more um, increasingly more teams using Lambda Right. And so when you have a team of people using or trying to develop an app together we end up with this problem of you know, it's kind of fairly common if you're working on a backlog and you have a few features and these these teams are like kind of in an agency setting, right? So they're working on behalf of a customer. So they go, okay, well, you know, I've got a pull request for this particular feature. Can I deploy like a preview version of this app so we can kind of show the customer? We can do some QA, right? Or some 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 kind of review so they can take a look at this. Now, this has caused an interesting problem with Evergreen or some confusion because if we think about the Evergreen assumption right the assumption is that you've got a straight linear change version one to two to three to four and the idea is that when you're doing a check what you're checking against is the production app the being the operative word there as in the singular the because if you have multiple production apps suddenly everything starts to not make sense you know if you've changed your types you've changed it relative to which production app so we kind of had this issue where um, where teams would go to create, they would just manually create another app. They would manually call it, you know, my app dash preview one, some feature. And then first things first, they would try to deploy their Lambda app that was only previously going to production. Let's say it's at version seven. So they try to deploy to this new app and the app goes, well, hold on, I'm, you're deploying version one, but I'm seeing like version seven snapshots, like what's going on, right? So the compulsion there, I think the natural thing is to be like, oh, that's weird. Uh, I don't. I don't know what to do about this. I'm just going to delete the Evergreen folder, and now it goes. Okay, great, cool. I can deploy version one for you. All right. So now you've got this code base that's deployed to version seven and to version one in two different apps. Now, a Lambda doesn't have a preview app concept right now. So as far as Evergreen's concerned, there's two production apps. Right. So let's say throughout the course of your pull request, you change types. And whenever you do and you're checking against your preview deployment, Evergreen's going to be like, okay, well, this is your production app. Looks like your types have changed. You need to write a migration, right? Um, there is a way uh, in Lambda currently to be like, uh, do, you know, ignore the migration or like, I'm happy for you to just drop it on the floor and reset uh, my backend model to in it. Um, so they might do that. Cause they're like, Oh, this isn't important. You know, my state isn't important on this preview app. And so they do that a few for a few times. And then, if they're unlucky or what's happened a couple of times was you get, everything's good. And they're like, okay, great, let's merge. And now you merge that in and you've clobbered kind of your evergreen history. And now you're on your main app, the one that's already at version seven, you're trying to deploy. And it's looking at maybe like an app version three. And so in that context, it goes, oh, okay, cool. You've got app version three, app version seven's in production, i I'm gonna try, you know, and it tries to figure out what's going on and it doesn't really make sense. And then we end up in a really confusing position. So the way that I'm thinking to fix this, and maybe there's multiple ways to address it, but at least the Lambda-era way uh, that I think we're going to do the first version is going to be, okay, the, let's have the concept of preview apps. And in a preview app, like it's a first class concept, your main production application has this thing called preview apps. Um, so maybe somewhat sim- similar to kind of like what people might be familiar, familiar to with like Netlify or I think Versal might do the same thing. And so the idea is that when you deploy to a preview app, Lambda will be like, ah, okay, this is a preview app. We're gonna completely ignore anything to do with migrations. The assumption is that we're always deploying a version one and we're always gonna reinitialize. And actually we might we might be cheeky and be like, we'll try restore the existing state into the new version. But if it happens that you've changed your types, we're just gonna reset it, right? If, if the decoder fails, And it's a strict decoder it's slightly variant from elms decoder. so uh you know if all the bytes aren't consumed perfectly um then it it will fail so it has to be a perfect decoding in from bytes into the value then yeah then we've got this separate chain so that would restore back to lambda's assumptions which is if you have an app there is only one production and there is only one evergreen story there is only one chain uh, history of changes into production and then we've got this separate mechanism which is preview apps no migrations, no nothing there. So the idea is that you do your pull request, you go through all the changes, Evergreen doesn't bother you at all. And then once it's approved, you merge that into main. And now when you're trying to deploy main, now you've got that, that's when that check comes in and goes, Oh, okay, you're trying to deploy, let's consistently look at what's in production now, what have you been up to locally and what's changed? Let's get you to do that migration. Um, so yeah, that, that's coming soon, TM. Okay trademarking <laughs> top right yeah what i would have imagined to be maybe slightly
2: easier or well the previous thing looks uh, sounds awesome but like if you had a v7 in production and you're trying to deploy and it's a v10 because you tried to do some migrations in the meantime i feel like maybe accepting uh unseen versions would have been easier so uh, there's another scenario that i can see which could be problematic when your team grows Mm -hmm. when you're working with teams is that like i'm adding a new feature or i'm changing a feature and uh it requires to write a a migration maybe complex maybe not Mm -hmm. and two other people on my team do the same thing and then we all leave on vacation and someone else tries to deploy Mm -hmm. and has to write those migrations because we didn't in the meantime, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I could imagine, like, well, I'm done with uh, with my work. Let me write a migration that will make a V8, which we're never going to ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it will merge it anyway. And then someone else does the same thing, V9 and V10, and then we ship that. I, I just say this, like, not, not a, just, I'm just throwing this out, but I'm sure
1: that there are some problems that.
2: You're, you have in mind that, like, nope, that's not going to work.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, the first thing that would happen, remember that the snapshot only happens when you deploy, right? So, let's say we have yeah. three pull requests and every single pull, let's, so the worst case scenario is this. Worst case scenario is you have three separate pull requests. All three team members have all changed the backend model. All three team members independently on the head branch have done a Lambda error check against production. They've generated migrations and they've implemented them, right? Yeah. And then now mm-hmm. they start merging. So first person merges, they get in first. Hunky-dory, no problems. Second person now is probably going to have GitHub conflicts on their pull request, right? Let's say even worst case version, let's say it's a clean merge for some reason, right? So they they don't huh. have any conflicts,
2: right? You mean that both would have generated a V8 migration and that...
1: But would it, it would have been it would have been identical except for the differences. So let's say they they changed very right. different parts of the model, right? So all yeah. of the snapshots were almost identical except for these deep changes, right? So maybe the changes mm-hmm. ended up in different snapshot files, right? So maybe it gets like clever and it's like ah yeah you're merging the same thing except for this, and I can I can figure out the merge. I'll merge it for you. And let's say the third person does the same, right? What's going to happen now is because there's only one deploy that's possible, whoever gets to the deploy is going to have to go through that lambda error check process. And potentially, if Git has tried to be too clever, you're going to get type errors, right? Because something, something as part of those mergers might not have f- fully carefully covered things. So there, if you think of like, you know, like what kind of burden are they stuck with? You know, you've all, all three of you have conveniently gone on holiday. So it's the worst, (laughs) the worst, worst, worst case. Like what's the absolute worst that happens? The absolute worst that happens is let's say it's me. I'm stuck with it. I go, ah, you know, Dylan and Yeroen have left me with this. So I go, you know what? I'm going to delete the migration. I'm going to do a Lambda check again. Lambda always Uh, does the type snapshots right so so say you say you did type snapshots you didn't deploy you committed them and then you changed more types and you did a check again Lambda is going to replace those version snapshots right because you haven't deployed yet so if you haven't deployed version 5 if that's the next version but you've been changing stuff it's just going to keep replacing the snapshots until you're deployed once you've deployed it's going to be like okay well fine next one's version 6 right so if I delete the migration file, I do a lambda error check, I'm gonna get now consistent snapshots with everybody's changes together. If their changes together, the mergers didn't type check, like if there was an Elm compiler error, I wouldn't even be able to generate the snapshots. I would just get an Elm compiler error first. Right? So let's say it's like worst, 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 worst case. The, El- the code is broken, it's been merged broken. So A, I fix all the Elm types, great, now Elm's compiling. B, I run Lambda error check, it redoes the snapshots. Cool. C, Lambda has now done the snapshots and it sees the migration is not there. So it goes, cool, I'm going to generate the whole migration file for you, right? With the placeholders for the bits that I can't migrate. And so now my job is to go, okay, let me see if I can go to those individual pull requests and slice out the individual specific migration implementations that everyone's already done. If I can Mm -hmm. and they fit in and then it type checks then I go, great, I've gone through pretty much a mechanical process, just following the types and getting stuff uh, done in. If instead it was, hey, two people have actually changed stuff in the same thing, like, you know, somebody's both added and removed variants on the same custom type on two different PRs Mm -hmm. all at the same time. That's a really great stopping point for me to look at this and be like, this is nuts. Like, we need them to come (laughs) back from holiday and explain like what should happen or I need to go to a product person or, you know, I need to figure out what's actually going on here. And I think that's cool because if that happened without this setup, there wouldn't necessarily be an indicator there that something's gone wrong. You know, you might merge these migrations together, these more, or actually even worse, like in Rails, if I think of Rails, I have a lot of experience with Rails um, as as a counterpoint. In Rails, each developer does their own migrations as a separate file, right? So you wouldn't necessarily even be aware that someone else was adding and removing stuff to the same model because that would all be in different migrations file. There'd be no natural mechanism to see a conflict. Um, so you could end up in a situation where you know you deploy like these non-commutative migrations that end you up in like a weird schema state, but that nothing catches right. Whereas at least in in the in the Elm Lambda world, there'd be kind of warning signs there. There's there's things that in the worst case would make you be like, huh, what's going on? Um, so I think that's pretty cool. That's a decent outcome, I think, um, even though there might be some pain.
2: So to summarize, your recommendation is for everyone to run, lend their check and write a migration, and then uh, it gets mer- those migrations get merged somehow by someone at some point?
1: No, so my recommendation would be that you do the migration part separately on the main branch if you've got lots of people editing the same stuff, or that would be a point that you communicate to, together as a team. You go, you know, it... it it brings that kind of idea of continuous deployment back a step. So it's not as free form as, you know, like some, some companies may practice like, oh, everybody can deploy and we deploy all the time. And like, we just don't think about it kind of thing. So it, it, it makes that a little bit more centralized. But I think what you get as a result is you get a much greater ability to model your business logic directly. And it means that you don't have to think as carefully about the consistency, or like the invariance that you're holding in that migration. So it trades off, I suppose, yeah, some of that kind of maybe, I don't know if you'd call it decentralized uh, deployment model to something that's a bit more centralized, but that gives you back a bunch of guarantees in return, if that makes sense. So th- I remember that uh, at one point, um, someone
2: told me that ARM review was kind of slow with their project uh if I recall correctly there was James Carlson who's a fervent user of Lendera and I, I checked it out and was like yeah this is a bit slow and I tr- I figured out why and <laughs>
1: I think I know why
2: <laughs> yeah there, there was an evergreen folder mm-hmm. with over 600 versions uh-huh, uh-huh. meaning over six <laughs> um, you don't have a, a migration for every version but a
1: few hundred migrations uh, migrations and snapshots
2: and, and snapshots uh-huh, and uh-huh. there was code that remained in the project and that only you had to you to run um, to go through which is now it's now a bit faster so I'm not getting those those issues anymore but yeah I, I was wondering like when, should you remove those migrations should you and it like can you remove v1 is there a way to tell like oh well no one is using v1 anymore because like lambda knows which client applications are running like do you have the knowledge or not
1: mm-hmm. at all yeah so the reason maybe i'll answer your question backwards so here's why you here's why you wouldn't want to remove all the migrations You wouldn't want to remove all the migrations if you wanted to preserve a full stack, full time history, time traveling debugger. And this is a feature that doesn't exist yet. (laughs) I was like, but if you wanted to use this feature when it does exist, you can imagine a slider. And if you can slide back like 17 versions, you know, to a point in time backup uh or like a log stream restoration in lambda you could do that right because it could go through the migration chain to get you to the right data source so that's why you wouldn't maybe want to remove those but saying that wait a second like, can you migrate backwards no but but it would be being able to get to the exact state that you were in for any given version at any point in time in history, right? So if you had the old migration chains, you can make sure that, you know, like if the last snapshot was in version 10 and you were trying to get to well, I mean, this wouldn't happen because we take snapshots anyway so it's a bit of a moot point, but yeah, this idea that you could slide a piece of a value through, or I'll put it this way, let's say if you wanted to support the, um, you know, the the scenario that somebody told me where they had a customer that came back like a year later, and they started seeing events from a year before, that person could get a hot reload a year later right like their app could go from version 10 and jim's case to version like 1500 and it could slide that value like like all the way up all the versions and they you know if they were halfway through filling in a form in theory the form would upgrade and all their stuff would still be there right like that's far-fetched a little bit but yeah. yeah in theory that would be possible from a practical point of view if you weren't concerned about that, there's no really good reason to keep more than a few versions. And the only reason you want to keep a few versions is if you wanted to roll back your data, right? To say someone's like, say you've done a migration and you've done the wrong thing in the migration. You set a dict.empty or a set.empty somewhere where you were just, you were being lazy for the moment because you're like, I'll do the migration later. And then you forgot about it. You committed it. And suddenly you destroyed all your users. You know, if you wanted to go back in that case, or if you, you know, had a customer that had been like, oh my God. It's Wednesday, but we just found out on Tuesday that you know Mario went in and deleted 600 blog posts. Can you please roll back to our state on Sunday? And that happened to be four versions ago. Um, you know, keeping those migrations around lets us go. Yeah, sure, we can load up that old version, and bam, it'll it'll upgrade through the last four migration functions into your current app. Right? We wouldn't have to we wouldn't have to roll your whole app back. You can have all the new features. We could just roll the data back in a safe way.
2: Yeah, uh, I guess you could use Git to restore those migrations again.
1: Yeah, so so you've which, got it. Which is
2: like a good v- feature of Git,
1: right? Yes, you've got it exactly. So from a technical re- perspective, there's no reason, given that you, the snapshots would have always had to exist when you deploy, there's no reason you couldn't clean that up, or that Lambda couldn't clean that up for you. And so the actual reason that everything is there is I decided early on that I wanted to keep everything really explicit um, and visible because in my head that would demystify it like people could go and actually look at the Elm code and be like there's no actual magic here it's literally just the Elm code and it's literally just there um, so the fact that it's kind of there and you can see it be like that's you know we're, yes we're doing code generation but it, we're not hiding it away somewhere and it's not going to break in really weird ways if it breaks it should break with Elm type errors pointing to files that you can go and look at and be like oh yeah that looks wrong or right or whatever it is and yeah I, this I still have it doesn't seem to happen often, to my absolute bewilderment. But I've always got this like terror that I've implemented something wrong, and some and you know someone's going to do a migration. It's just going to horrendously gen- generate like the wrong stuff, right? So I kind of want that also to be visible, so that the user can see. And if I've done the wrong thing, they could fix it, right? You could fix the type snapshot yourself, or you could you could modify stuff. Um, Thankfully, yeah, there's, there's some gen issues in the latest migration um, generation, but so far there haven't been many, uh, or maybe one, only one or two a long time ago, issues with the type snapshotting, right? So, so far, like the type snapshots extract correctly, it seems. Um, knock on wood, obviously. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that that's, it's more a social reason for, for them being there than a technical necessity, so to speak. So yeah, we, we we might make that more magical in future, and then then Elm Review won't have uh, problems, side effects, as it were.
0: So the the evergreen migration auto generation, which we haven't really explicitly talked about, but I understand that was like a big pain point that was addressed by this latest release. Is which there is much V1 to say 1. about 1. it?
1: Yeah, one point one. Uh, is 1. there 0, much right. to
0: say about that besides that it's just it kind of does most of the tedious work for you, right? That's kind of the headline of it.
1: Yeah, that's the headline. So the thing that people would run into that I think people would find confusing is like, say you had a custom type. Let's say we had the ice cream custom type, but with lots and lots and lots of flavors. Let's say we had two hundred flavors, right? And even say you've changed a field somewhere else and you have to write migrations. So like not sadly, but. Uh, as a trade-off of Elm's current equality model, right, you couldn't just take that old custom type and cram it into the new one, right? Like Elm would be like, well, these are different. They're in different, they're in different files, right? They're different namespaces. These are different values, even though they're structurally the same. So in prior to version 1.1, uh, the migration would only generate the placeholders. Like, so the top level function types and names and they'd be like, okay, here's the six migration functions I need but you have to go do all the work of implementing what's inside them, including writing a massive function migrate ice cream flavor case old of every single old variant matches to every single new variant. The only difference being they're in different namespaces, but otherwise it's like the same text over and over and over and over, right? So, so I think this was frustrating as a user experience because it was like, you know, if I'd only changed one field, now I'm writing migrations for all fields and all custom types everywhere, and I have to do this every time. So it wasn't it wasn't the end of the world. Some people, you know, found like okay, you know, once I've done it once, I can pretty much kind of <laughs> copy paste a lot of my migration implementation. But I wasn't happy if you've with done it six hundred times. Yeah, Jim Jim got really 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 <laughs> good at, at doing these migrations. Clearly, um, but for, for newcomers as well, it was really confusing. Right, like it it made them it made them confused, extra confused. Cause it's like, I'm like, oh yeah, you generate migrations for your change types and also for these types that haven't changed at all. And it's like, you know, once you get through it and once you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, okay. I can understand now if I understand Elm why this is necessary. But yeah, it was it was, it was was getting you to have to think about something else. So yeah, yeah long story short. Blessed- yeah, long story short now, um, Evergreen, where those types haven't changed, it does a pretty good job at basically generating a bunch of that for you. Uh, and so it tries to you know as deeply as possible I mentioned it you know it zips effectively these two types it starts at the top and keeps going through them so it's a record it tries to pair the record fields by name and so on and so forth and then yeah anything anything that's been added uh, it gives you like a little notice to be like hey this variant has been added it's just a reminder in case you wanted some old variants to map to this new variant that doesn't exist yet and also hey this variant has uh, been removed right like what do you want to do with this old value because it has nowhere to go so yeah that that now tries to be a lot more uh kind of automatic so yeah the feedback so far is pretty good Uh, jim's happy at least he's my (laughs) i think he suffered he suffered the pain point the most of anybody (laughs) categorically um so he's told me he's enjoying it and he he says migrations only take him like you know a minute or two now to sort out so uh yeah that was the (laughs) goal.
0: that's great so one thing i've been curious about so this New release also ships with the Elm PKG JS spec. And I've been curious, like, how... So from what I understand, before this, with a Lambda app, you couldn't just add a .js file and ship that and arbitrarily add ports and JavaScript behavior on the page, right? So I I was really curious to understand, like, how, how does that design decision... And how does Elm JS fit into the concept of evergreen migrations with the front end and the guarantees you're trying to give in a front end Lambda application or, or the front end part of a Lambda application?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So in short, there's a few features in Lambda that have actually been there for a few versions and I've been kind of trialing it out with some customers who've ran into to certain kind of limitations and they needed solutions for. And so what I announced in the last version, I think, was this idea of labs. So Lambdaera Labs is like a set of features that are in Lambdaera that you can use in production, but they're marked labs because it's kind of like buyer beware, right? It's like there's a reason this isn't recommended yet or isn't part of the mainline platform. So Elm JS, which kind of yeah, started from the spec, which... I was hoping maybe it would take off, but it hasn't yet. But maybe there's still time. Um, uh, but the idea was to be like, you know, I'd noticed this problem where a lot of the JavaScript that people wanted to use is is this, and I've, we've, I think as an Elm community, we've talked about this problem a few times where we've got like, there's certain Elm packages that are like, hey, this Elm package requires some ports and some JavaScript setup. Um, here's a bunch of long-winded instructions of varying consistency between packages of how to do that you know and and it's it feels like a i don't think it's a massive issue but it's kind of like it's just a bit it's a bit painful you know i was always like oh how do i do this and you paste this and where do i paste it and should i put that all in this file and what bundler do i use i was kind of thinking about that experience with lambda being like what would be a nicer way to do this and with evergreen in mind right and also this restriction where you know we don't want this on the back end at the moment so in the front end, it was like okay, uh, a great example and a package that that kind of got native, quote unquote, a support for Lamdera is Martin's Elm Audio package, right? So he he added a, a specific, you know, like Lamdera front end with audio. So it's a function where you put your Lambdera app in that particular wrapper, and then he has an app wrapper that depends on certain ports and adds some extra functionality to support like uh, loading audio and playing audio and managing like the variant the, the state bits of that right so as a user you can kind of be like yeah i have a normal uh normal app and then i wrap it in this lambda uh, front end with audio and then i get like some extra bits right so i can manage audio and that requires some some javascript so the idea was to say okay well there should be some way like what what JavaScript? what effectively do these does this slimline javascript need effectively the needs a way to hook into init right so when the elm app is being initialized We want to get an instance of that Elm app so that we can bind our subscriptions, like our port, our inbound and our outbound ports. So Elm package JS was being like, okay, how could we, what would it look like to have like a really delightful standard for shipping a bit of extra JavaScript and some ports with an Elm app in a way where ideally it was type safe, right? Like, it was very clear what ports are there, what things go in, what things go out, how should they be used, and for it to be able to check this, right? And there were some some bigger grand ideas about, like, you know, should we do, like, community verification that the JavaScript isn't going to launch a blockchain client, you know, or something like that, you know? Like, maybe, you know, introduce, like, some safety stuff to, to be, like, you know... If you do like Elm package.js install some package, it's gonna do an Elm install of the package and it's gonna pull the JavaScript down and it's gonna set everything up in a consistent way. And maybe that would make it really nice, you know, for 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 the use cases. So there's, you know, there's like a copy to clipboard example in the uh, in the Elm package.js spec and a few other examples of like, you know, what would it look like to have these little bits, you know, little little port bindings to web APIs usually that aren't available natively in Elm. So yeah, the um, the second concern there was when I was, tr- so there's a proof of concept implementation of this spec. The spec has got nothing to do with Lamdera, but Lamdera implements that on package.js spec, at least in its first version. As far as I'm aware, it's the only consumer or implementer of the spec, <laughs> which was also written by me. So maybe that's why. Um, but I haven't pushed it too hard, I guess. Uh, and so yeah, in the Lamdera implementation, we only have this init, but in the spec i was also considering like an upgrade right so what happens when a front end is upgrading maybe rather than init being re-invoked and you having to carefully think about or well, what happens if init gets invoked multiple times you know yes you want to rebind your ports to the new app but maybe you don't want to reinitialize like the audio context right because it uses user's browser hasn't reloaded so there was an idea of like, well, could we just do all that in init and say to people, you have to think about init as being kind of like item potent, I guess, you know, like it can be run multiple times and you have to be, you have to do what's sensible when that happens. Or should we explicitly have, okay, this is an init thing and then here's an upgrade so that in upgrade you could just be like, okay, you know, I know I don't have to do any of the init stuff, it's already there. I can only do the code that needs to happen for upgrade, which is probably rebinding ports. So that's kind of an open question, and that's why on package implementation and Lambda is still in labs, um, because that's not uh, fully handled. So there is a way. Uh, currently, the processes you contact me, but there is a way to opt out of the hot reload stuff in production. Um, and some people have chosen to do that on their their apps, where they're like, you know, I'm, I don't have that many users, or I don't I don't worry about that but I've got like some, you know, complicated JavaScript setup that I haven't figured out how to handle this evergreen concept. in. so they might opt out of the live reload. And then instead, what happens is that when the app deploys and the new front end version happens, it forces a hard refresh. So it forces a full page reload and and, and reinitialization, you know, which will lose some front end state for people, but gets back the, you know, things aren't, you don't end up in that state where you know, things are broken or you're sending old versions and, and you don't have the new app version. So we still get the consistency at the, at the loss of some front-end state.
0: Does that make sense? Right, yeah. So how does that fit in with like the the guarantee? So like what would happen if it was just a free-for-all, you can run JavaScript on the front end of a Lambda app? like, or, or what what do you gain by the design decision to not allow that? What's the motivation behind that? Yeah, so so there
1: is no constraint actually. Like you can do anything in that JavaScript in the front end. What I suppose, like the guarantee that gets made is that that JavaScript will only run in the context of an app being initialized, which isn't a huge guarantee, but it, it means that you your code doesn't have to worry about the initialization setup, and Lambda can continue to control like there's a harness, right? Like that does the evergreen magic and some other stuff and does special bindings to make the front end back end stuff work, right? So the Lambdaera platform has a bunch of harness things that it does for you to make everything seamless and uh, and everything work. Um, so yeah, the thing that we get from a Lambdaera perspective is that we let the user kind of plug into that into a sensible way. But yeah, 100%, like a user can throw exceptions in that JavaScript code, the user could crash the app, like that all the normal JavaScript stuff comes back into play. Um, so the user has to be careful, um, but yeah, they, I suppose the only other guarantee they get is that that in it will will be called again when the upgrade happens. So it gives them a mechanism if they wanted to try to make the evergreen uh, philosophy work with their JavaScript stuff. Um, if the JavaScript's simple enough, you don't really have to do anything. But yeah, if you had something a bit more complex like like an audio context, then yeah, you could be like, okay, cool. I know and it's going to get called again. I'll you know put in some guards to check whether I really am do, doing the first initialization or maybe I'm already on my second one.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. So conceptually, like if you really wanted to model what happens in a um, when you invoke a port, uh, I guess you could just say, if an exception happens, we want to model that explicitly and you could. But I mean, since an outgoing port doesn't get anything back, couldn't you just like... Let a a, a port call happen, and then say if if it crashes, we just catch the exception and log something, something like that. But I guess having the Elm package JS spec gives you a box to make those to organize things and to make those safety guarantees within a port. Is that is that sort of the motivation? Yeah. So so the
1: the Elm package JS spec does kind of philosophize about what would be a good overall mechanism there which could include those safety guards but the lambda implementation currently it just goes to the to the at least it just kind of goes to the concept of being like okay you put your javascript for your individual port use cases in this folder in this way and then anything that's in that folder i'm looking for an init in each file and i'm going to run it for you and that's as far as it goes so none of the spec stuff about like the types and the safety of that, like you still have to implement that yourself. So it's not like a full automatic implementation of the spec, um, but I would like to have that eventually. Like it would be nice if there were, you know, like if that was a feature where you, if you did like a Lambda install of a package that did have JavaScript, that Lambda would be like, hey, this package is JavaScript. Would you like me to set this up and create the package ports.elm file and put all the types in there for you you know, and I'm like then it's just ready to go. I think that would be really nice, and then it's just a question of you know would that would people find that interesting as a standalone tool, and would the community find that interesting as a way to be like, hey, this is how we bundle small bits of JavaScript utility JavaScript um, with our packages. It's definitely an anti-goal for it to be like. This is how you, you. This is how you drag in 17 npm dependencies into your project. Like it's absolutely not for that use case. There, there's an. I mean, there's an example of how you would use Elm package JS, but at this stage you'd have to bundle some of that stuff yourself, right? Like you'd have to pre-package things. Like, like it's not really for that. The idea was how do how do we like in a nice way get like this ancillary JavaScript for Elm packages?
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, amazing stuff, Mario. If people want to learn more about the latest release, more about Evergreen, more about Lamdera, uh, what should they look at?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Lamdera.com, it's really the easiest starting point and easiest to remember. W- with a B, right? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're in, just ruining all of my <laughs> naming. Out. It's definitely not with a B, L-A-M-D-E-R-A.com, but yeah, that'll, that'll get you through some of the pitch and pretty much straight through to the documentation so you can take a look at that um yeah there's there's some example apps there that are really quite small and contained so i'd recommend people take a look at those um evergreen i wouldn't i mean i would say it probably makes more sense to look at evergreen when you need to look at evergreen i uh, if people are interested you can read the evergreen docs but um i think it probably yeah makes more sense in practice when you're actually trying to get from one model to another in a specific use case for your specific app then going through that process i think you can be like oh yeah that makes sense i've done these changes and there's a migration uh, that i want out of that um, reading it as a high level i'm not sure how well that 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 um yeah that lands uh but yeah anyway all the docs are there and yeah as always um we've got a we've got a discord full of lots of lovely and helpful people so if you want to ask any questions or ponder anything you're always very welcome in there yeah that's pretty much it
0: Wonderful! Thanks for thanks so much for coming on, Mario. Yeah, thank you.
1: No, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, as always.
0: And you're in. Until next time. Until next time.